Welcome to Made in Science, the official podcast of the University of Stuttgart. My name is Wolfgang Holtkamp and I'm Senior Advisor on International Affairs at our university and your host for today's episode. In this episode, we welcome Nina Heppele. She graduated from the University of Stuttgart with a diploma in aerospace engineering in 2008. During her studies, she went on an Erasmus exchange year and acquired a master's degree in thermal power at Cranfield University in Great Britain. After finishing up her studies back in Stuttgart, she moved to Switzerland to start her professional career. Shortly after, she began to campaign for women in engineering. It is a topic and a passion that has stuck with her until today, working for GE Power as performance engineering manager, leading an international team while also being the co-leader of GE's women's networks branch called Women, Women in Technology. Today, we are excited to talk about her job in an international company, the role of women in engineering, and what challenges climate change brings to the table. Hello, Nina. How are you today? Hello, Wolfgang. I'm good. Thanks a lot. We just talked about, or I mentioned, climate change. In your personal life, what has been the latest contribution against climate change? Well, I think, you know, my daughter, she's three years old and her daycare is like three kilometers away from our home. Same, my office is just next door actually to her daycare. And until like one and a half years ago, I was driving that three kilometers every day by car until I decided I'm going to switch to the bike. It took me so long because we're actually living up the hill and it's quite an exhausting ride to get back, especially when you have to pull her up the hill. But I finally decided to buy an e-bike and basically do that on a daily basis. And like that definitely reduced my uh, amount of using my car on a daily basis. And building up some physical power uh, of yourself as well. Uh, does your daughter know that you are, that you studied aerospace engineering? The younger one, not yet. I think she's too young to understand, but the older one, definitely. I mean, we're talking regularly about what we're doing for work because she knows it from other parents whose parents are do doctors, for example. So we try to explain her that we are working in the power plant sector and that I studied and learned how to build an air, air engine or an aircraft. So she knows it. She even has like books around about it, but so far she's not too enthusiastic about it. But it is a topic at the dinner table. So now you are performance engineering manager in the power industry. What is your job? Can you give us a job description, please? Well, I always see my job as kind of a connecting function. So my team is working on a global basis, supporting performance of gas turbine and combined cycle power plants, which means basically We're starting with the NPI, which is called New Product Introduction, where we're defining and developing new products, uh, to, which will eventually get into the gas turbines or be used as upgrades for older gas turbines. 
then we're basically working on identifying opportunities. How can we support our customers with upgrades? What is it? Where can we, for example, improve their efficiency of their power plants or their emissions, reduce their emissions and so on? We provide them then the respective offers. What would we be able to offer on a performance basis? So how much power efficiency would they be able to produce after the upgrade, for example? And then, of course, it goes into execution, into performance testing, where we need to test whether it actually what we originally offered and guaranteed if we can also basically show that with the power plant. And then we're also doing something like called digital twin, which is basically we're building the power plant or a computer model of the power plant and run that basically in parallel to optimize the output or the operation of the power plant in general. And of course, it's also then goes into maintenance, root cause analysis, because there's always something going wrong on, on power plants and where we need to fix it in order to get the unit back for our customers on time. So my team basically supports that on a global basis and on a day-to-day job, basically, I'm, I have a lot of different activities which are either ensuring that everybody's aligned to the right project, have the right priorities, ensure that we serve our customers, of course, and as soon as possible. And then also, of course, support a long-term strategy of GE as a company as well. These are many topics, really, that you have just uh, summarized for us. You mentioned the word team, and I understand that you are the leader of a multinational team. What are the advantages and the challenges of working in such an environment? Well, I think, you know, I mean, first of all, my team already, which I have here in Switzerland, is quite international. So we have more than, I think, 10 nationalities in the team which makes it extremely diverse. And that's why I really love this kind of work. Additionally, we're working in a global team. Uh, so for example, my direct line manager is sitting in the US. Most of my peers are in the US. Then we have a big team, for example, in India, in Mexico, all over the world. And of course, I mean, you have on the one hand side, the advantage of diversity of inputs, diversity of thoughts, You, you don't come from the same background. You get, get into your job with new ideas and can basically always have a new input on a daily basis. On the other hand side, we have also like that a global setup, which ensures that we can work basically 24-7 ensure to support our customers because there's always somebody working around the world uh, at any time of the day. On the other hand side, of course, you know, working in a global environment, you need to be much more flexible uh, with respect to, of course, time zones. So you cannot use, work your standard eight to five and uh, expect that you have during that time always uh, your peer on the other side of the world available. It's always limited. So you need to adapt to that. People need, uh, are very flexible around that but of course it's also a challenge for people and of course the other challenge in general is you do it's always different and i mean i think we all learned that over the past one and a half years working remotely is different than working in person so most of the team members basically of that global team we're talking about roughly 200 engineers i've never met in person 
uh, even my peers, some of my peers I've never met in person. So it's a different thing to work together remotely on a constant basis than if you sit next to each other also in an office environment where you get much more like these informal talks and so on, which we are all missing, I think, uh, since this whole pandemic is uh, basically occupying our daily job. Yeah? But we feel that, of course, on a, on a daily basis. Yeah? And then the other challenge is the cultures, right? So everybody has a different culture. So everybody comes with different expectations and also to how we do the work and what we deliver. And we need to be very careful to always align that and to ensure that we work together as a team. Let's switch to some of the products that you work on uh, with this international team. Um, what is the role of climate change uh, when your company develops new products and uh, perhaps what is even the role of different parts of the world in contributing to uh, developing these products? Well, I mean, for us, the biggest topic is CO2. So CO2 is the number one contributor to climate change. change. And actually 41% of the global CO2 emissions come from the power sector. So power generation has a huge part to play there and basically also a huge potential to reduce that. And over the past years, we really went into defining a clear strategy. How can we basically support the world in to getting to that zero carbon uh, within the next, uh, let's say, 20, 30 years? And there, of course, we were now working on a daily basis on that ensuring on one hand side we can for example switch already now coal power plants to gas power plants which basically have an immediate impact on decarbonization uh, we're talking about roughly 50 to 60 percent uh, because basically of the lower co2 intensity of natural gas compared to coal and that's what we're actively already working now on replacing existing coal power plants by gas power plants. But then we also have a long-term strategy which goes in the direction of how can we really also reduce gas turbines or gas power plants to almost zero carbon emissions. And that really goes into pre-combustion, meaning hydrogen, using hydrogen as a fuel, but also the post-combustion Uh, aspect, which is then carbon capture. Given that background that you have in aerospace engineering, did you see yourself ending up dealing with short-term strategies and long-term strategies when it comes to addressing climate change and developing new products uh, in the area that you work in? How did that happen? How did you end up uh, in the power environment? Well, I mean, that was kind of a uh let's say, coincidence. Originally, you know, as you mentioned, I studied aerospace engineering and I always wanted to work with uh, airplanes, with air, air, aero engines. And then, as you also mentioned, I decided to go to England to do an Erasmus exchange there and studied their thermal power where I got also really involved not only with jet engines, but also with stationary gas turbines. 
And that was really my first contact with the power sector. And kind of due to um, a former colleague of mine, which I, who I met during my internship at Rolls-Royce Germany, close to Berlin, who was actually doing his internship before at, uh, at Alstom at that time in Baden, Switzerland. And he told me, well, Baden is such a nice place. It's close to the mountains. You have a lot of uh, lakes around there. I would definitely go back if I can. I simply decided after my studies, I, I want to go to Baden. And that was not so much focused about moving into the power sector at all. It was more, I want to work there and want to have that experience living in such an environment. And that's by coincidence, I ended up here and I got stuck. At the University of Stuttgart, aerospace engineering is a very big area. And also uh, in Germany, uh, we are one of the universities uh, where you can uh, study this field and uh, there are not many more where you actually can do it in, uh, with, in, in that particular specification. Why did you decide to go for that particular subject? Well, I was always, I mean, I liked also already in school, I liked mathematics and physics. So I also decided to go for that for the last two years, you know, do the basically the so-called Leistungskurs uh, at, the, at the school in physics and in mathematics. So that kind of path the way towards engineering studies potentially. However, my big dream was always to become a pilot. However, my eyes just were not good enough for that. And then I was kind of a bit, let's say, maybe stubborn uh, and saying, okay, if I cannot fly an airplane, I want at least to be able to build one. And so I decided to go for aerospace engineering. And Stuttgart itself was somehow not quite enough, right? Uh, aerospace engineering is an international field and uh, our colleagues uh, are very well linked throughout the world. You went for an international program and participated in an Erasmus exchange program and spent a year at Cranfield University in Great Britain. Was it always part of your plan to spend time abroad as a student? I wouldn't say from the beginning, but I, especially during my internship at Rolls-Royce in Germany, uh, close to Berlin, I realized how important or how international field in the end is yeah, and how important it is to be able to speak English, to be able to work in an international environment, because also Rolls-Royce is quite international. And so after that, I was sure I want to explore that and I want to take that opportunity I got, of course, with Erasmus, which I think was, uh, I mean, was a great opportunity for me and a really great program to go to the UK and study there. And basically like that, you know, since also the, the exams I did in the UK were also accepted at the University of Stuttgart. I didn't really lose time of that year, but I simply could just gain additional experience in an international environment and, of course, also improve my language skills. 
So it worked really in sync. The two universities uh, you were at at the time and, uh, and it contributed to uh, your studies uh, in many ways. Uh, you mentioned the language, perhaps also the intercultural uh, experience. Would there be anything else uh, that you took up uh, while you were abroad uh, apart from the education? Well, definitely, as you said already, to get to know different cultures. I think at the time when I was in Stuttgart, we were still not as international as it is nowadays, especially the uh, the aerospace engineering program. And at that time in, in Cranfield, basically the students came from all over Europe, but also from all over the world. So from Saudi Arabia, for example, South Africa, Canada, and you got a complete different view on the world from all that experience that came together. And I think that was probably even more valuable for me than the language itself, just to understand different cultures. How do they think? How do they act? Also have some challenges there as a, as a female student, which I didn't have in Stuttgart before, to be frank. So that was certainly experiences I wouldn't like to miss and it was good that I could make them there. Was this then also the beginning to get involved with the topic of women in engineering? Since you just mentioned uh, the experience as a female student in the engineering um, uh, surroundings. Yeah, I think that like increased my awareness for the topic. So I had already the chance when I was in Stuttgart to participate at some programs uh, which benefited especially or supported mainly female students. But I think at that time, I was not yet, it wasn't nice to have for me, but I didn't really see the absolute need to do it. It was more nice. But then when I had some experience where it was really like different cultures, except for example, women differently, I saw, okay, we, uh, there's some need, we need to do something about that. And certainly when I got then into, uh, into the, professional life and learned about women networks being present there, it was clear for me that I want to get involved. And you also took it to the next level at, at GE then, uh, at the company that you are currently employed at. Uh, I mentioned that uh, you are co-leader of GE's women's network branch. Um, how did you feel that it takes more to be involved? You also wanted to be committed Uh, to the case uh, as a co-leader, not just be part of uh, that particular group, but actually contribute actively uh, in a significant visible uh, position to that. Uh, so uh, why did you feel that uh, that was necessary? Well, I think especially so such groups only can live from those people who are driving it and who are doing it. Um, you need to have people who come in always with fresh ideas. And that was at the time when I started, I thought, okay, I'm one of the younger ones, but I can come in maybe with different ideas than those who are already doing that for a long time. So you can always bring new ideas. You need to have also a new, let's say, energy coming in. And so for me, it was clear, I do not only want to consume, I also want to, uh, to contribute, especially since I think in general, we're missing in the engineering sector, female role models. I mean, I see that the, that that's also a topic for me, you know, that to not have this 
role model where you can necessarily look up or not as many as men necessarily have. And therefore, I wanted to, to get involved, to do whatever I can to improve the situation and also maybe in the end inspire some younger engineers to also um, yeah, work on themselves and also get involved into such initiatives. Do you see young women coming to uh, the company uh, that they need particular need to be particularly addressed in uh, in this fashion at all? I think what I realized, and I think it's a bit similar to as I mentioned before, my way. In the beginning, you do not see necessarily see it as an issue because you know you decide to go for engineering. You're aware that there are less female students than male students. But I think with time, there are coming more and more experience you collect, where, and it might be just small things which in your daily life, which influence your daily life, where you see with the time, okay, there's really an issue we need to address. And I see it similar for female or young female engineers now. They do not see it necessarily directly as a huge issue, but over time it comes more and more. Uh, the more they evolve also their career, they see that they are getting lesser and lesser, unfortunately. And that that basically, therefore, we want to address already young women to, from the beginning, go in there with a bigger self-confidence, with a different starting point, basically, and uh, have a better startup all over. Do you have a particular example for that one? So, I mean... What what we see a lot is that, you know, it's still the case that traditionally females are asked to be more caring, to take care of other people, to ensure that everyone around them is feeling well and good, but not necessarily fight for themselves, stand up for themselves and talk about their achievements. And that's still with young female engineers also the same. They are usually not the ones who are uh, standing up and saying, look, I achieved that. They do their job. And they see that as, you know, somebody should see what I'm doing without having to talk about it. And what we try to do is really, and we use the Google initiative, I am remarkable for that, uh, which is basically really targeting females to get more self-confident, to talk about their achievements and work more towards self-promotion. Because it says in the end, uh, achievements don't speak for themselves. You need to talk about it to be heard. And I think that's a female topic in general, to be more backward, more in the passive, and just do what needs to be done. Looking back at your studies uh, at the university, what would you recommend um, to universities uh, these days to exactly uh, support that particular attitude, to develop that attitude uh, during the studies for female students? I think definitely already start from the beginning with building up that self-confidence, doing also more practical exercises. For example, you know, work more on how do I best present myself, my presentation skills. What's, uh, what's an elevator speech, for example? How, do I, how can I um, just talk about myself in the, within a few seconds and get over the essential parts of what I'm standing for? But also just basically raise the awareness also amongst the male students, because I think that's also a big portion. I mean, of course, females in general have certain attitudes 
which do not necessarily work in favor for them in the professional environment. But on the other hand side, it's also the awareness which needs to be raised amongst male colleagues. What is actually, where are we really not inclusive yet? Because diversity is one thing. And I think diversity, we're on a, on a good way. If we also work more towards, you know, supporting already younger students before they actually decide to go for engineering studies, that, that will, with time, I guess, get better and better. I hope so, at least. But to be a real inclusive culture, we need to be aware where, to, where are the issues. And these are often like these small unconscious biases that uh, just um, get up maybe in a small sentence you say, which you might not even think it's something bad, but which arrives on the other side as a, as a bad comment. And I think there we all can play our role on that awareness side. Coming back to energy production and the climate question. From your point of view, what will be the greatest challenge for energy production in the upcoming years? I think, as mentioned before, I mean, we are already, the carbon clock is kind of ticking and we need to reduce carbon uh, dioxide emissions as fast as possible. However, simply by replacing, let's say, coal or natural gas with renewables, we're not in a position yet uh, to basically reduce or remove carbon dioxide completely immediately. So we need to work on one hand side on a short-term strategy to reduce immediately CO2 emissions as much as possible. But on the other hand side, also work on a long-term strategy. How can we really get to zero carbon? And I think there we also need to still have more acceptance across the politics, but also basically across the whole population, what is really needed and what do we need to accept in order to reduce uh, CO2 emissions? Because it's not simply done by just putting renewables out there. We will not get there. The problem with renewables is simply it's not always available. So wind is only available when and it's windy. Sun is not available during the night. But we want to have electricity all over day, the day, independent of the basically weather out there. And so we need to have backup energy sources to basically fulfill that uh, demand over 24-7. And I think that can only be done if we really combine renewables with gas plants going forward. Where, as I said before, we can basically do that already today switching from coal power plants to gas plants and then on the long term even work with these gas plants and remove their carbon emissions and reduce them also to zero by for example using hydrogen as a fuel or carbon capture. However for doing that we need to accept that we still use natural gas at least for a certain amount of time and that natural gas is let's say the better um, fossil fuel compared to coal and there I think we're not yet globally there it's often gas is seen as bad although it can bring us an immediate reduction in CO2 which we will not get from any other sources that fast 
Given this context, what is the relation between companies dedicated to that matter and society uh, on the other hand? Um, that goes beyond politics, I think. I mean, society as a whole, really, the understanding of these issues. Do companies, would you say that companies uh, should play a more active role uh, in that? Or do they do their own, um, follow their own path and uh, develop by developing products? Uh, what's, the com what's the communication, I would think, uh, between these two areas? Yeah, I think, and that's certainly a topic companies need to intensify their efforts. And I think GE is going a good way there. So over the past year, we, for example, published a lot of white papers on that context, decarbonization. Uh, we've also published a podcast which, call, which is called Cutting Carbon. Everybody has access to that. They're already in the third season now where basically it's discussions about with industry experts, with scientists, but also with basically just uh, also political uh, aspects uh, to explain the whole complex situation around that topic. It's not as simple as it always looks in the first place. Um, there are also always certain restrictions depending on which country you're talking about. There are different political Uh, rules, for example, in the U.S. compared to to the to Europe, but even within Europe, the situation is different amongst the countries, and therefore it's a very complex topic. And I think uh, we are doing already a good step, or we're going a good step in the right direction with that podcast to basically explain that to people. But of course, people or the society in general needs to invest also time to understand the whole complexity, because it's not as easy as it sounds, and therefore you need to invest time to really get deep into it. So yeah, we're talking about basically all moving to electrical vehicles, such as e-cars. But in the end, that's only a contributor to decarbonization if the power sector decarbonizes, because if electricity used for those cars are not is not de uh, decarbonized, we're not necessarily making an improvement by simply moving to electrical cars. And I think that whole context is so complex that we all need to do our part in getting better informed and defining also for ourselves what's the right way to contribute to that. This brings us really back to the beginning of our conversation when you mentioned that your personal contribution uh, against climate change is... Uh, more walking and uh, that means to the kindergarten uh, walking down the hill and actually up the hill walking home uh, again on these walks or beyond do you talk with your children uh, about issues of energy or is that a far away concept for them no i think we definitely talk about it in a more broader context so for example when we do some weekend trips we try to take the train instead of going by a car And we try to explain them that it's better for our climate if we take the train. We also try to explain them, for example, that taking in the bike is better than always taking the car. What where we are, I think, really actively trying to do something already with them at their age is really about waste and trying not to use too much plastic or produce too much plastic waste. So I mean 
you might know when you go to a supermarket, there are so many attractive offers for kids where there's more plastic around than actually inside uh, what they can consume. I have constantly discussions with my kids that they would like to buy that. And I try to explain them that this is not good for the environment. And I hope that maybe on the long term, something will stick with them and that will help also. At the end of our conversation, we have something that is called Moment 7. For this, we have collected seven questions that we would like to ask to you. Please answer as shortly as possible. Here we go. Moment 1. Spätzle or Maultaschen? Maultaschen. Moment 2. One thing you could change about the world. It would be great if there were no wars anymore. Moment three. Do you have a book recommendation for us? Yeah, I think my preferred book from the last year was definitely Becoming by Michelle Obama. Moment four. The best advice that you ever received was... That came from a former uh, boss of mine who said, you can achieve anything if you only want. Moment five. Your favorite place on campus. Well, we used to spend a lot of time in the aerospace cafeteria in the back um, of the campus. However, I also love this little pond uh, at the, on campus to just sit there and relax. Moment six. If I could start all over again, I would do the following differently. I would get even more international experience and try out different things uh, when still being young and have the flexibility to do so. And moment seven. Please complete the following sentence. Thanks to my studies, I know that... Well, I think that the capacity of my brain to master any mathematical or physical problems is much bigger than I would have ever thought. Thank you, Nina, for this lovely talk today. We are looking forward to staying in touch and wish you the best of luck with everything you do, especially if it refers to energy, where so much, as we heard from you today as well, is made in science.